0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the effect COVID-19, or coronavirus, could have on the economy, and what impact this outbreak and the recent trade tensions have had on our manufacturing supply chains, and whether this points towards the end of globalization as we know it, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, thank you for joining us on Word on the Street. I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our CIO. Will, the severity level is rising on what's now been named COVID-19. After this week's sharp upward revision to the number of confirmed cases and a few related stories in the European media, we'll have another look at some of the likely impact of this as well as the latest in the search for a challenger to take on President Trump. Um, we've got all this coming in the November elections. We'll cover a few other bits and bobs too. Um, it's been a very busy week in market land, hasn't it? Has it? Indeed, yeah. so, so starting off with the viral outbreak, do these sort of so-called methodology changes that we've seen from the Chinese authorities, does that change our expectations at all with regards to how this could impact us from an economic or market aspect?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been the question on everyone's um, lips today, Nikki. And uh, it's interesting, I guess, that this change in methodology coincided with a change in the Communist Party leadership uh, in Wuhan. So that's the kind of, you know, the new boss has come in and sort of, uh, and uh, I guess, changed the way that the disease has been, that the outbreak has been viewed. Um, there was anyway growing scepticism about the numbers before this announcement as it goes. Um some had been making comparisons with the kind of body count numbers that were coming out of the Vietnam War, actually, which we, you know, we now see um, were being driven not by the truth on the ground, but but the need uh, to portray um, a certain kind of narrative domestically. And
0: manage the message. Manage
1: the message, yeah. exactly, and show that you're winning the war. But I guess the first thing to say is that this is another of those areas where confident predictions um, are a sign of ignorance rather than any great insight. Um The next couple of weeks, we will get a bit more information um, about the kind of evolving um, reproduction rate of the virus inside China, uh, and indeed, to what extent this is kind of going to go international. Uh, Now, on a latter point, I would still argue, or we would still argue, that the news remains reasonably reassuring so far, Um, but we're going to be obviously watching this very carefully. But for now, we remain positioned kind of at the edges of our kind of multi-asset class portfolios and funds, you know, the, the stuff that we run for clients, for slightly brighter economic times ahead. Um, but you know, in the very short time there that there, there is an economic hit coming down the pipeline for sure.
0: So could this finally be the straw that breaks the uh the, the economic cycles back? I mean, I know we constantly ask ourselves this question, don't we? It's the
1: worry. Yeah, uh, the big hairy to, worry. Yeah, it's it's the one that's on the sort of client minds the most, yeah. isn't it? And and there is certainly a risk here. We can't, you know, rule it out altogether. You know, as we've pointed out before, you know, if you think if you sort of it's a bit of a simplification of the world economy, but if you imagine that the world economy, the engine room for the global economy is really the US, um, not China. Um, And within this, the US consumer can really thought to be the kind of single largest slice of final demand for global PLC. So one way to look at all this would be to, um, you know, would be to try and establish how and where this might impact um, the US and whether it would be enough to, to end the expansion, so you say. Now, so you know, you can look at a couple of things. So first of all, you know, you think about Chinese tourism, um, which I think accounts for around 20% of the global pie, you know, global tourism, uh, which is big. Um, and there were 3 million Chinese visitors to the US in 2019, um, spending on average £7,000 uh, £7 pounds dollars per visit. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, and that could certainly take a bite out of, you know, H1, half one, uh, you know, the first half output growth. Um, for the us and indeed for the developed world the other thing to think about is the supply chain effects um and what this might do for kind of business confidence and those kind of things Uh, and these are simply very difficult to model um but if you want to take the glass half empty approach which is probably you know a little bit wise on this front you would point out that manufacturing confidence is already in the doldrums after the kind of trade tensions of the last few years now furthermore um uh, and really unhelpfully uh, from the U.S. side, you can also throw in the grounding of the um, Boeing 737 Max after mm-hmm. those two horrible um, accidents uh, in the last couple of years. Now, it may seem a little bizarre to worry about the grounding of one aircraft line in the context of a kind of $22 trillion um, economy, but our esteemed, as our esteemed uh, colleagues in the investment bank, um, actually uh, pointed out, observed on their uh, podcast, a really interesting one. I would really recommend listening to. The seven three seven is surprisingly important. So each plane accounts for around eighty million dollars of value, U.S. domestic value added. Um, so if you go from producing one, uh, you know, producing forty odd uh, planes a month to zero uh, until it is recertified, um, it can have a sizable impact. You know, around about you know about half a percent of um, quarterly GDP. So yes, I mean uh, putting it all together, yes, um, the risks are. Um, uh you know certainly rising um however i think the more important point really to keep hold of is the u.s consumer and on the plus side the u.s and the developed world consumer consumers still remain in reasonably robust health so in the u.s wages as we pointed out in last week's podcast actually you know wages are rising across all income um uh uh uh, sort of segments um You've got, uh, you know, the misery indices, so unemployment plus inflation are extremely low, record lows across most of the developed world. So still that kind of health of the consumer is still enough to keep us um, believing that it's more likely than not that this economic cycle continues. Um, but certainly the Wuhan outbreak is very very important to keep an eye on and how that ripples down the kind of confidence chain.
0: And just, you know, a lot of our listeners will be thinking a little bit closer to home perhaps. So for for the UK and European economies, Clearly, there must be a risk that that we get some kind of knock-on impact to our supply chain. Um, so thinking like Hubei is very important in car production, I gather. Um, do we have a sense of how large or, or perhaps some of those other sectors, as well as car production, that might be impacted by this?
1: Yeah, like you say, so car um, uh it's very important in cars and parts of the tech uh, supply chain. Um, And there are already some parts already been quite severely affected. The problem really is here, um, Nikki, is that we're only guessing at the direct impact to China at the moment. And so, you know, extrapolating from that is very difficult. We haven't really had any kind of, um, of what we would sort of, somewhat tragically called cool, kind of mainstream economic um, indicators yet. Um, so people are really kind of reading the runes from stuff like daily coal burn at various uh, various plants, um, you know, hotel room occupancy, freight loads and that kind of thing. Now, the signs from these kind of more high frequency indicators, they are a bit less reliable. They do give too small a picture in some senses. So you don't want to put up too much on them. But the signs from these are that China is experiencing or has experienced so far a sharp slowdown um, in activity. Um, and um, and these are going to ripple up, you know, various industry supply chains as we speak. Now, like I say, though, our expectation is this is a short, sharp hip. And actually, that's kind of more or less um, so far. And again, tentatively confirmed by a bit of a stabilization um, in those high frequency indicators that we've seen so far. Um, we are already seeing some China's, Chinese factories coming back online. But we're going to have to watch this very carefully. I think that's the point. Um, it really goes to illustrate just how interconnected... Um, the modern world is um, in sort of business
0: land. Yeah, and, and so that that's kind of what I was thinking, that, you know, as you've talked about, companies have really changed the way that they manufacture, you know, producing goods. It wasn't that long ago that you had Ford, for example, had one giant manufacturing plant um, doing every component of, of manufacture and assembly. So, you know, you'd literally, you could see steel going in one end, a car popping out the other end. Um, so, so... Now that you're getting parts, for example, manufactured all over the world, coming together at that that just-in-time final assembly um, piece, you mentioned Boeing earlier. I, I found that I, I'd not heard those stats. I mean, that it's really amazing, isn't is it? Oh, yeah. Incredible. I was surprised about that too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, kind of weird
1: with an economy that big, but yeah, so. yeah.
0: Who who'd who'd have, who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk um, but but. You know, you mentioned that another example of, of um, you know, where where you have that impact. So supply chains are really complex in many industries. So you know, when we think about things like the the viral outbreak, and even thinking back to the trade trade tensions that we've that we had over last year, it sort of makes us sort of stop to think about the fragility of of our of our um, you know our whole sort of economy and the globalization piece. So. I guess my question is: Are we seeing an end to some of this complexity? Do you think we'll start to see a bit of a retrenching into more? I don't know if this is a word, localization. Yes, something like that.
1: Yes, I think. That Should we try is. and coin it? Yes, that's, that must <laughs> be the word. If someone hasn't, we'll get it. We'll patent it straight away. And it's a fascinating. It goes to the heart of the sort of you know a lot of the stuff we're we're looking at at the moment, Nikki. And I think um, I have to admit there are a few clean answers. Um, we can make a few points. I think. Um, First things first, I think, uh, you know, we need to be wary of this idea that we're somehow going to kind of recreate uh, what I would think is mostly a kind of an illusory halcyon era when we made stuff and everyone was happy and, you know, in the West. And, you know, that I think is is probably not the right way. There are even some, some economists who have argued that, we, you know, in the UK, for instance, that we should permanently devalue sterling um, by about 40% I think is their rough estimate in order to kind of bring back good old manufacturing um, and their argument is that all those towns that have suffered you know job losses amidst globalisation would be restored to their former glory etc 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 Hopefully not before the summer holidays <laughs> Hopefully not before the summer holidays exactly yeah that would be quite painful but um, I would put that idea into the kind of quite dangerous nonsense category I mean first things first the problem in a sense with low end manufacturing um, at the moment is it doesn't really come with many jobs um, it's mostly done by robots now anyway so why do you really want it back um the other point um i think really is that the point that i would really hone in on is that the past is almost impossible to recreate even if you wanted to um you know eternal kind of white hot competition is the truth of the world and nostalgia is really your enemy here you need to kind of chase yourself into the future so you need you know wider education better education um social safety nets to kind of pick up and nurture the kind of people left behind the focus should be kind of productivity and how to drive it and you know, how to solve that problem, not to try to create this illusory pass, and also uh, devaluing your currency. If you think about it, you know, you imagine, well, there's a number of things. So first of all, like you imagine someone who has lent the UK money uh, from outside and they've done it on an unhedged basis and you're suddenly turning around to them saying, okay, what well, you lent us, you know, we're going to give you 50% back. Now in that situation, it's happened to many emerging markets before. What tends to happen in that situation is in future, if I lend to the UK economy, I just demand a higher discount rate, just like if I went to the bank and said, you know, I'm only going to pay you back half the money I owed you before. If I ask for a future loan, I can expect a seriously much higher interest rate. So you offset a lot of the benefits from that. Just, it doesn't even mention the cost of inflation. There are basically just much better ways to improve your living standards. And I think, you know, you know, and, and also technology, not globalization is possibly the enemy here. Um, uh you know that's i'm not sure we can stop that you know Mm. that's the thing nonetheless look okay i mean i haven't really answered your question so far i'll try and answer now (laughs) but in a world that's kind of starting to wake up to the environmental costs um of kind of long-haul transportation where we're starting to see some of the limit limitations of kind of global governance versus mega regional governance uh where some of the advantages of these kind of you know as you call them you know very intricate you know occasionally fragile supply chains are becoming a bit more uh, a bit more apparent could we see a world uh, which dices up kind of into more regional blocks versus a global one? The answer is yes, definitely so those
0: global mega corporations that um you and Toby I think we were talking about the other day in your in your podcast, you sort of sense that that are we likely to see a reversal in that
1: yeah, it's a really interesting idea, isn't it I mean because you know Part of globalization is certainly these companies that have kind of reached to the ends of the earth and kind of commanded the whole world. Um, And if you think about it, one of the things we've talked about a lot on this podcast is, you know, and and various other people have talked about this. Well, you know, um, you know, the exponential view, those kind of people, those kind of podcasts, and sort of uh, writers, you know. But in smartphones and iPads and the associated apps, you've basically put the means of production into almost everybody's hands. So you know, you are finding that very small, agile businesses. Um, You know, almost reminiscent of kind of pre-industrial artisan era, are in some cases like competing with toe to toe with these kind of previously untouchable, um, you know, giants. So it's a really, um, and in some sectors the kind of regulatory posture of the region. This is another really interesting thing that's really happening right now. So the regulatory posture of the region in question, where you're operating. That may have an important um, difference to where you want to move to. So, give you an example of, um, you know, personal data, all the stuff that we sort of, you know, put onto the internet. Now, in China, uh, the authorities are telling you that your data is my data, belongs to the state. In Europe, they've gone the opposite way; they've said your data is your data. You know, GDPR and all that kind of stuff is saying very much pushing it back into your camp. In the US, they're sort of going some way in the middle. Now, what does that mean for kind of, you know, fintech companies and all those kind of guys trying to operate in all three blocks? Do Is it suddenly more convenient, with all the other nuances put alongside it, to just operate and make money out of that mega regional block uh, and leave others to other areas? So, you know, it's going to be very interesting to find out. But certainly, um, you know, many of the large established megacorps, you know, as you called them, you know, they're kind of elephants having to learn how to dance again um, and because of this kind of nimbler um, competition they 're increasingly up against, so it 's going to be really interesting to watch over the next decade in particular I thought.
0: and and actually, my train of thought has moved a bit to politics because you know a couple of the things that you 've said somewhat reminiscent of um, you know take back control going backwards um, we know we know president trump is is very much looking to shore up um, the the sort of manufacturing base and and voters there are, so obviously we saw um Bernie Sanders the Vermont se- senator uh he just narrowly won the New Hampshire primary this week um so so what can we read from this what what do you think are we getting any kind of uh insight into what the what the November presidential election might look like who who president trump might be up against
1: not really I
0: no. Think. It's, no, not really. <laughs> but it's so going to be fun watching. Isn't it's it? going
1: to be fun watching. And that's the thing, from our view, I think it is. Um, so, I were in New Hampshire. The thing that people tend to say is they're not particularly representative of the wider population. Um, and there's no real evidence um, yet um, that Bernie Sanders is more than a kind of a factional candidate, i.e., a, you know, there's no sense yet that he's a. Peeling across the entire base. Um, that may change. The same goes probably for um, Buddha Judge just yet. You know, as we pointed out, like he's so far, his support is concentrated in um, kind of college educated whites. Uh, and the performance of Amy Klo- Klobuchar is interesting because it really illustrates that centrists um, on the left hand side of the scale um, in the U.S. and the Democrat camp still haven't worked out who their champion is. Um, you know, Biden, for his part, is um, has got some work to do. Um, but yeah, I think the more representative states start to come up uh, in the next few rounds. So we'll, we'll learn more as it goes along. But is it, like you say, it's going to be interesting to watch.
0: So it sounds like there's nothing much for us as investors to to make of this just yet. Um, as as I know you said many times in the past, it's a long way from the campaign trail to to policy and certainty. So... Uh, we can't we can't read too much into it. Okay, so anything correct. else at the moment catching your eye? Anything um, we've had the long anticipated HS two announcement. Um, I see that we've had some cabinet movements. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, yeah,
1: well so he just resigned in the and, and so Richie Sunak, um Rishi Sunak is um, has been talked about in this position, you know, as you mm-hmm. know. So I think um, on that, um, there's nothing much for me to add. I think we need Sophie in to talk about it maybe next week. So we'll try Perfect. and get her to talk about it a bit more authoritatively than I can. I did, however, this week, catch two um, absolutely vital um, kind of economic papers um, from the 1990s. And again, uh, this oh. is as far as so that. They, so they're basically providing cover for us to watch more TV. Um, it's really interesting. <laughs> so there's two. So and I, and I obviously, this is a personal pet Passion of mine, but one Susan Strange uh, from her 92, 1992 vantage point makes the argument um, that basically satellite TV has been key to creating um, political pressure for improved living standards. Um, mm-hmm. So, basically, by showing people living in poor countries how well those in rich li- uh, countries are living, um, I think that's quite questionable to be honest. That assumption, but um, interestingly, this effect can also be seen in rich countries and does not necessarily have much to do with uh, well, uh, how well real people are living, any, anywhere are living. So what we mostly see on TV, as you know, is a largely kind of imaginary world. Love Island. Love Island. Okay. So, well, actually, the UK's actually a bit of an exception here because, you know, what you tend to find is most soap opera uh, characters really anywhere but in the UK um, lead lives of kind of bizarre extravagance. Not so on kind of standards and all the rest of it, but <laughs> everywhere else it does. Yeah. You know. Now, there was a lady who wrote a really interesting paper in 98 and she showed that Americans who watch a lot of television spend a lot more and save less than Americans who watch less, even controlling um, for things such as income and education. So, yeah, I, my recommendation to everybody listening to this uh, podcast is watch Cheer. Okay. Watch Cheer. Monica, <laughs> or or, or Monica. Stick,
0: stick to the UK's Slightly Miserable Slightly um, miserable, TV yeah, but as you're, opposed you're, to... You'll spend more, I tell you, <laughs> if you watch, you watch Cheer. Very good. All right. Thanks so much, Will. Um, thanks, as always, to our listeners. Um, Quick plea from both Will and I, um, well, especially from me, because Will does this more often. So please do give feedback. It, it really does help us to take on board... Um, how we should improve what you'd like to hear more of less of who you'd like to hear more of less of Um, will is he's got very thick skin so don't worry you won't upset (laughs) him too much Um, but, but thank you very much for joining us all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation